Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shi. I'll be an incoming freshman next year at UCLA, got elected as the youngest Joe Biden delegate in Illinois, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. I am the author of The Watergate Girl and also an MSNBC legal analyst and um, have had a number of other jobs in the past. Watergate Girl is based on my experience as the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate case. So with the Supreme Court tossing the 60th Trump lawsuit attempting to reverse the overwhelming popular vote for Joe Biden, and with the Electoral College now giving Joe Biden the 306 votes he earned and making him the winner of the 2020 election, it is clear that Trump won't be the sitting president as of noon on January 20th. Now that leaves a lot of us looking ahead to what the Biden administration will do to investigate the threat to democracy and the rule of law presented by the continuing denial of the fairness of the election process and the refusal to admit that Joe Biden is now the president-elect. Our podcast has always focused on intergenerational issue, and today we want to focus on the role of U.S. attorneys and the rule of law and what is happening now or what will be done after January 20th to investigate and possibly prosecute Trump-related crimes and civil liability cases. We'll also explore the challenges ahead for the next attorney general as he or she works to undo what Bill Barr, who has officially now resigned, has done to the morale of the Justice Department, as well as to its integrity and its independence. We have the perfect guest today to dive deep into all of those issues. He is someone that Jill and I have admired for so long and have always wanted on the podcast since the beginning, Preet Bharara. Preet served as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017. Before leading the Southern District of New York, Preet was an assistant in a major law firm and a counsel to Senator Chuck Schumer during the investigation of President Bush's 2006 midterm dismissal of U.S. attorneys. During his time as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is often regarded as one of our nation's most important and often referred to as the Sovereign District of New York, Preet was considered one of the, quote, nation's most aggressive and outspoken prosecutors of public corruption and Wall Street crime, unquote, according to the New York Times. He was known for taking on cases against both Democrats and Republicans and using unique prosecutorial tools. When President Trump was inaugurated, Preet refused to resign and was dismissed, so with the impending choice of a new attorney general and new U.S. attorneys, he is the perfect guest to talk about all of those topics. Preet is now also the host of his own podcast called Stay Tuned with Preet, which focuses on issues of justice and fairness. And although he is a graduate of my alma mater, Columbia Law School, he is now a professor at NYU Law School. He's also the author of a book, Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law, and we'll be discussing his book today, too. Thank you, Preet, so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I I feel very intergenerational. (laughs) That's the goal. It's like like my dinner table uh, every night, (laughs) because my my kids, uh, they're at home. (laughs) They're stuck with mom and dad. Well, I'm I'm honored to be the co-host with Victor and to, oh. you know, really share what our common common views are, but also to explore where we understand things differently. So um, I, I think it's it's 
it's just great that you're here today. And I want to start with two questions that I think are particularly important and that are bothering me. And I think a lot of, I know a lot of my Twitter followers. And the first big question is, what is your take on Bill Barr resigning? And also the soon to be acting AG Jeff Rosen. So I'll take the second one first. I don't know Jeff Rosen personally. I know a lot of the people who come in and out of government. I, I just don't know Jeff. I don't know if you know him. Uh, I don't know that he has a reputation for corruption, um, you know, but nor did Bill Barr. Uh, Bill, you know, I was one of those people who said when Bill Barr came in, it was a, it was a step up from Matthew Whitaker <laughs> and that he was a, an institutionalist. You know, I don't know if you made that error, but I made that error. Chuck Rosenberg made that error. Ben Wittes made that error. I mean, a lot of us made that error. And it turns out that Bill Barr was something less. And I'll get to that, the first part of your question in a moment. So, you know, there's limited time to do bad things in the coming weeks, but, you know, it's, it's not no time. So I, I have a, a healthy skepticism of, of what will take place in the Justice Department over the coming weeks. Bill so Barr's let resigning. Me say, let me just interrupt yeah. because I did not make that mistake. You're smarter I, than I. Well, I didn't know him, so I had no reason to have any personal opinion, but I read his audition memo. And I went, this is a dangerous person. The executive authority that he was willing to confer under his unitary executive powers uh, concept yeah. scared me to death. And so I, I didn't make that mistake. Good for you. But, but I Good also want to say on, on Jeffrey Rosen, before we leave Jeffrey Rosen, is I don't know him either, but I have done some research on things he has done at the Department of Justice. Uh, in his short time there, and it includes his covering up the IG of the Intel community's criminal uh, report and allegations against Trump, keeping it from Congress. He worked to try to fire McCabe. He handled the case against Bolton publishing his book. He encouraged no prosecution of Secretary uh, Zinke. He kept Manafort out of Rikers Island. He emphasized that U.S. attorneys should prosecute protesters uh, for sedition. So there is, I think, some reason to There's fear. There's a track record. Yeah. That's not great. Look, and he also you know, served loyally this attorney general uh, yes. who's on his way out. Um, and, you know, people get picked for, you know, at some point in the administration, uh, you know, Donald Trump and his, and his team, Stephen Miller and others, got smart from their perspective. From the kinds of people who they want to appoint, you know, no, no more sort of accidental Chris Ray appointees who are somewhat independent, right? So, the, you know, the burden is on the office holder now to show that they're independent and believe in, you know, the rule of law and everyone being equal before the law. So, there's that also. So, on, on the question of the resignation, the, the quote-unquote resignation, yes, you know, I saw the report that suggested that the White House Counsel negotiated it, which makes it seem like that the president wanted Bill Barr gone because he committed, you know, two, possibly three sins after being, uh, you know, a faithful, loyal, you know, basically personal uh, lawyer to the president after misrepresenting what was in the Mueller report, after intervening in an extraordinary way in the Roger Stone case, after intervening in an extraordinary way in the Michael Flynn case, after that whole business of, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the tear gassing of protesters outside of the White House in that park, you know, incident after incident after incident. And by the way, also laying the foundation in advance of the election for this, you know, wholly unjustified, you know, non-evidence-based narrative 
that there was going to be all this voter fraud. He overstated a voter fraud case in Texas. He overstated a voter fraud case in Pennsylvania. He said that there were going to be thousands of ballots being sent from other countries, from foreign nationals. So all of that was, you know, rah, 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 great from the perspective of Donald Trump. And then what were his sins? His sins were number one, he wasn't able to compel or cause John Durham, U.S. attorney in Connecticut, uh, to put out a report that would be you know, negative with respect to Donald Trump's adversaries before the election. He said, and I, you know, this is an interesting thing, Bill Barr said, and he knows how to speak carefully and he knows how to avoid answering questions. He said there, the Department of Justice had not found any evidence of widespread voter fraud that would change the result of the election, which earned a rebuke, which is probably something to be proud of, earned a rebuke from Rudy Giuliani and from this new lawyer on the scene, Jenna Ellis. And also looks like he might have been aware of the investigation by the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office into Hunter Biden and appropriately kept that quiet. And so, so these sins are, so you can, you can do thing after thing after thing after thing in favor of the president. You can be the governor of Georgia or the secretary of state of Georgia or Jeff Sessions or Bill Barr or even Fox News and 99 things you do and you know, prostrate yourself for, you know, for the interests of this president you do one thing that he doesn't like, and you're out. So um, I think it's good riddance. I think you've said things like this as well. He did a couple of uh, correct things at the end. That does not obscure and cancel out the record of the last two, two and a half years. I think he's been a very destructive attorney general. I don't know what will happen for the, for the coming weeks. And I don't understand how people give up their reputations like Jeff Sessions did and, and get humiliated by a president whom loyalty only runs in one direction. Back to Rosen, um, is there anything that he can do that you're worried about in the next 30 days? So this is not, I haven't thought deeply about the, the issue I'm gonna mention. So one thing that is important is, you know, there is a now confirmed ongoing, seems to be a significant investigation into the tax affairs of Hunter Biden. And um, I'll just think aloud on your show because I had a chance to think deeply about it. And I reserve the right to retract any of these statements <laughs> on, on cable television and my own podcast later. But one thing that you might think could happen is the appointment of a special counsel. There's some reporting that Donald Trump wants that. There's a parallel um, you know, sort of model for that, uh, as, as people may know. One of the other acts of Bill Barr that probably pleased the president was he elevated John Durham, who's the sitting US attorney in Connecticut, to the status of special counsel you know, offering him a little more protection from being removed uh, by the subsequent administration. And, you know, the, the, the acting attorney general would be in his rights to appoint a special counsel in usual circumstances. Um, you know, it's not a crazy idea. It's not a crazy thought. You have a, if, if it proves to be true, and I, I have a lot of questions about that investigation in Delaware. I mean, there's some indicia I, I've written and, and said recently of regularity, that U.S. attorney who I do not know personally in Delaware has served at a high level in that office under Democratic and Republican administration mm -hmm. seems to be a career person, but against the backdrop of a president who has not only made clear that you know he views the department to be a weapon of his against adversaries and, and a shield for allies, you know he he specifically called for investigations of Hunter Biden. He spe he specifically made it clear not just in this country, but also in the independent sovereign state of Ukraine, that, that you know, no effort should be spared 
to smear and to investigate the Bidens, in particular Hunter Biden. And against that backdrop, you have to wonder what's going on. And if it is true that you have a career prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney in Delaware who is respected, who has done things like uh, keep keep the investigation covert before the election so as not to influence the election, you know, given that he's done things like that, you know, the, the better and I think wiser course would be to let it run its course to handpick a special counsel uh, by, you know, by an outgoing acting attorney general after the prior attorney general was fired, given what Trump wants. Uh, you know, I guess it depends on who that person is, but there would be you know, less indicia of reliability and regularity and nonpartisanship if that special counsel appointment was made now after the investigation has been done by a sitting U.S. attorney for a period of time. That, that is such an interesting view. And I, I don't know if you've thought about it, but the first special counsel that he that Barr appointed was Durham, who I believe is an illegal appointment because a special counsel under the law cannot be a government employee. And Durham is a government employee. He is the U.S. attorney. And therefore, I believe his appointment could and should be challenged. And this is nothing against Durham. Uh, he may be doing a fine job in his current role, but I think we should follow the law and that a special counsel should not be a current government employee. It's a very interesting thing, right? And there's a lot of back and forth on this among people like us. The special counsel regulation says very clearly, I think it's 600.3, Yes. That the special counsel must be outside the government. So I agree with you. What it looks like Barr did was, was you know, use his general statutory authority to make someone a special counsel, use that term, um, although they're not technically under the regulations of special counsel, but then make applicable in that appointment to that mm -hmm. special counsel certain of the regulations, excluding the one that says the person's supposed to be outside of government. <laughs> and it's been done before. I mean, the one thing that it gives me, makes me careful about, about criticizing it is, you know, not that I was, nobody, not that anybody cared what I said back in the old days in 2005, but, you know, acting attorney general Jim Comey did the very same thing when he appointed Pat Fitzgerald to be special counsel in the investigation of the Valerie Plame leak. Uh, Pat Fitzgerald at the time, just like John Durham, was a sitting United States attorney at that time in Chicago. So I, I want to be somewhat, I'm going to try to be consistent in what I criticize and what I don't. Were the laws the same I in 2005? So. Was it the same exact um, regulations? I'm not sure. It I would was. have to double check. I, I, yeah, I think I think it was. But. One of my concerns is the laws that I operated under as a Watergate prosecutor changed. Well, those are definitely different. Yes. Independent counsel, and I believe changed again now for this one, and that the rules and regulations now are weaker in terms of independence than they have ever been, and. That's one of the things that I hope that the uh, Biden administration will look at. But let's move to the second big question, oh. which um, relates to what you mentioned um, uh, in terms of what DOJ should do in terms of investigating. And I'm, I will get to the Hunter Biden one later. But first, I want to ask is, do you think that the Biden Department of Justice should investigate Trump and prosecute him if the evidence that they obtain warrants it? It's just a complicated question that divides that divides a lot of people of good faith who are supporters of Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden himself 
is probably at odds with some people in his tight circle. He may even be at odds within himself, right? Mm -hmm. It's a complicated subject. On the one hand, you know, I, I had, I don't know if you've had them on, I had Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer on the podcast a few weeks ago, and they've written a book called After Trump, on which they propose all sorts of rules, including with respect to the special counsel and inspectors general, and it's a very smart book, and they're very smart people, as, as you know. And they disagree on one thing in their book, and that's on this question of what should happen. Should you turn the page and move on so that the country is, is unified and so the new administration can pursue its agenda, whether it's infrastructure or trade or you know, combating the pandemic? Or do you go down this path that I think a lot of people think is a worthy path because accountability is important, justice is important, truth is important, but will it cause there to be too much divisiveness in the country? So you see, I've not answered the question. I laid out uh, a little bit of the, of the contrary views on this. The way I dodge the question a little bit is as follows. It's, it's quite one thing to say, you know, with respect to volume two of the Mueller report, which lays it out, case of obstruction, hundreds and hundreds of prosecutors signed a letter saying they think it's a, it's, you know, a, a credible criminal, federal criminal case. And, you know, we've been through that and we had an impeachment. And it's one thing for, for Biden and a new attorney general to say, you know what, we've been through this. It's kind of been adjudicated. The people spoke in connection with an election. We don't think we should do anything more here. And probably that's what Biden thinks. But I have a prediction, and I could be totally wrong, but there are all sorts of things that this president and the people around him have done that we don't know about yet, right? So on February 1, when, when, when the next 10, uh, I'm forgetting his name, Miles, um, Miles Taylor, you know, who is the, turns out to be anonymous, and was the chief of staff at DHS, you know, when, when more of those people come forward and set out wrongdoing, and wrongdoing that might be happening, by the way, in the coming days during transition before, before Trump leaves office. And the New York Times or the Washington Post puts on the front page of, of their paper two weeks after the inauguration, you know, there are reports that Donald Trump did X or Y, you know, these documents were destroyed or these orders were given and it's new. This is just the nature of momentum. This is the nature of press. It's the nature of congressional inquiries and also Department of Justice inquiries. How are you gonna say we're not gonna look at that? How are you gonna say we're just gonna let that go? So I, so I draw a distinction between the things that we know about that may be prosecutable and you can have a debate about that. And then there are gonna be things that are not known. And, and further with respect to that, I think, I think there needs to be an inquiry. I don't know if you style it an investigation. I don't know if you style it a prosecution as an initial matter, but, but some excavation has to be done within these agencies and within the White House. We need to find out what what President Trump said to Vladimir Putin at Helsinki and, and other instances. We need to find out whether or not he interfered and uh, you know, told his Justice Department to sue uh, you know, for antitrust a particular company. I think we need to know those things. And only after knowing those things can you make a deliberate decision to sort of forgive and move on uh, or prosecute. But you know, it's gonna be a tough question <laughs> for the incoming folks. I, I agree. and. Um, if we had more time, I would love to have a dialogue with you about my perception and what happened during Watergate with not indicting the president on very substantial evidence and the well, ground that it laid for Donald Trump to think that he is above the law. Well, there's a, the distinction between Watergate and now 
is a point in favor of pursuing Trump. And that is, at least in Watergate, the president accepted publicly some responsibility and he got the hell out. Yeah. He went out the door, he got in, he got in Marine One and he flew away, right? Yes. Not to be heard from for quite some time after that. And in that circumstance, it is a little bit more um, acceptable and, satisf and satisfactory for Ford to say, okay, the guy took some responsibility. He left the office. You know, multiple people have been impeached. He's the only guy who left, quit, right? This president, not only does he not, did he not leave, he still thinks he's won the election in a landslide. Um, he takes no responsibility whatsoever. It's a little bit hard. So on, on, on the side, when you're doing this debate and you do the balance sheet, on the side of people who say move on, like what's what message does and I and I get this and I sympathize with it, what message does that send when you have a guy who's completely, you know, non-contrite at all? You, 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 it it kind of hurts to let him get away with with a lot of bad conduct and bad behavior. So I get that. We know that you know the next administration has a lot. Uh, they have to face a lot of these questions and they have to pursue some of this. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. But um, for now, let's take a few steps back um, and kind of help my generation um, understand the role of U.S. attorneys. You know, you served uh, for the Southern District of New York. So um, can you first explain kind of what the role of U.S. attorneys do and kind of how you become a U.S. attorney, like what that process is like? Well, how you become a U.S. attorney, this is going on now. Uh, lots of ambitious lawyers are seeking U.S. attorney spots. There are 93 districts in the country. Hmm. It's kind of odd how they're divided. Some large states have one U.S. attorney. Right, so Massachusetts has one, District of Massachusetts. Arizona has one. Hmm. New York has four, Northern, Southern, Eastern, and Western districts of New York. And so in each of those positions uh, requires appointment nomination by the president and confirmation by the Senate. But unlike some other jobs, like in the cabinet uh, and in Washington and other agencies, you know, generally speaking, both United States attorneys and and uh, trial judges in the federal system, the U.S. district court judges, are recommended to the president by senators of the same party, if there are such senators in that state. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I, I happened to be in the right place at the right time, hopefully also had all the qualifications, but I was, I was working for Senator Schumer, senior senator from New York, when President Obama became the commander in chief. And so I was recommended by Senator Schumer. Uh, in states where there's no senators of the same party, Sometimes a, a prominent member of the House from that uh, locality will, will, will weigh in, and sometimes the White House will just choose for itself. And then the recommendation is made, there's a vetting that's done, and then a nomination and a confirmation or not in the Senate. What does the U.S. Attorney do? You know, the U.S. Attorney in my district is, is kind of odd. There's a lot of competing prosecutorial agencies. We're the only city in America that not only that has more than one United States Attorney, there's a Southern District and an Eastern District. And even the city of you know the, the city of New York is divided into five boroughs. Two of them are in the eastern in the southern district, the Bronx and Manhattan. The other three, Queens, Brooklyn, and Staten Island, are in the eastern district. And eastern district also has Long. This is too much detail, I know. Eastern district <laughs> geography lesson. Eastern district also has Long Island, and we have counties up north. But this in the same geographical locations, there are also district attorneys, local district right. attorneys. There's an attorney general who operates, and and by and large. The, the United States attorneys are responsible for prosecuting all federal crimes in their jurisdiction. So, you know, we don't, there are certain things we cannot do. So ordinary street crime, uh, you know, sexual assaults, uh, 
assault and battery, you know, general push-in robberies that don't involve interstate commerce. That's all in the province of the local district attorneys. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we do that overlaps. So DAs prosecute narcotics offenses. They prosecute heroin smuggling rings. We prosecute heroin smuggling rings. Uh, they prosecute financial fraud. We prosecute financial fraud. We have statutes in the federal system and in the local system that allow that. So how does that work, that, that, how does that work itself out? Generally speaking, not always, uh, the federal prosecutor's offices who have uh, relationships with the FBI, you know, federal agencies, the FBI, Secret Service, DEA, um, IRS, criminal investigations uh, side, we tend to focus our efforts on the larger cases. So in the, in the drug world, whatever you think about the prosecution of drug crimes, you know, the local DA might be prosecuting like a local drug you know, um, group that's uh, terrorizing a neighborhood near a school or some such thing. You know, we would sometimes do that, but most of the time we're focusing on drug cartels in Colombia or the poppy production in Afghanistan and looking at big drug kingpins around the, the country and around the world. So we're, we're hopefully focusing on bigger ticket items and things that have a big federal interest because we have more resources and we can be more selective. There are no cases that we really have to take. And every U.S. Attorney's Office you know, runs the gamut. We did, um, we did gang cases, we did drug cases, we did arms trafficking cases, we did terrorism cases, we did spy cases, we did cyber cases. That's something that's a much bigger deal that U.S. Attorney's Offices are better capable of handling than, than DA's offices. So you name it, we did it, uh, generally if it was big and important and affected uh, public safety. Yeah, and I think this is one thing I didn't know about, but these U.S. Attorneys are political, right? These are political appointments. Yes, but important distinction. So the only person in that office, so it was an office of about 220 mm-hmm. assistant U.S. attorneys and about another 200 staff. So it was an office of about 450 people, uh, usually. The only person there who's appointed by the president and who's confirmed by the Senate is the United States attorney. Everyone mm-hmm. else is a career person and, uh, and, and by and large has you know, civil service protection. And even though I am a political appointee, U.S. attorneys are political appointees, the understanding, tradition, and ethics of that position requires that once you're in office, you'd be a non-political person, which is why I'm glad Jill said in the introduction that you know I prosecuted, oversaw the prosecutions of both Democrats and Republicans. Um, I didn't know the political affiliations of the people who we hired or the people who worked for me. That was not something you talked about. That was not something that was appropriate to talk about or consider. Um, it goes against department policy and regulation. Um, and we took no sides uh, politically. If there was a Democrat who had, who had violated his oath, we prosecuted. If there was a Republican who did it, we prosecuted also. I mean, one of my, you know, the, the biggest cases we did when I was in office is within the space of just a few weeks, we charged uh, the Speaker of the New York State Assembly, Sheldon Silver, who was a Democrat, one of the three most powerful people in the state. And literally, we had a parallel investigation going on of the Senate Majority Leader, Dean Scalos, who was a Republican and convicted them both within days of each other at the end of that year. I think that's a good sign that we were, you know, equal opportunity pursuers of corruption in the state. So I think that's why the New York Times quoted you as um, the nation's most aggressive and outspoken prosecutors of public corruption, Wall Street crime. Um, That explains a lot. And I think it really relates to um, how important the office is and what the Department of Justice should be, which is apolitical and independent. Um, But let's talk about, you know, you served for the entire Obama administration and then refused to submit your letter of resignation when Trump became president. So because earlier on you had already said um, that U.S. attorneys, you 
usually get nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. Tell me what your thinking was about not resigning when President Trump took over. So my my situation, my situation was um, a bit peculiar, uh, unique. So Donald Trump gets elected. I started making plans to go into private practice, um, made plans to take an expensive vacation, which I hadn't done in many, many years. I've been 17 years in public service at that point. And then I'll try to make this a quick story. Uh, eight days after the election, my former boss, Senator Schumer, calls me and said he got a call from Trump to congratulate him on be, being elected the leader of the Democrats. And he said, the president-elect asked me about you. I said, he asked me, asked you about me? He said, he said, what do you think of Preet? And Senator Schumer said, I think he's terrific. And Trump, eight days after the election, said, well, I'm, do you think he would stay on if I asked him to stay on? And Senator Schumer said, well, I'll ask him. And he asked me. And it was interesting. I was not a supporter of President Trump. I didn't vote for President Trump. Um, and I had you know, some thoughts about President Trump. But I also love my office. And I understood it to be an independent office. So I consulted with my family, called the senator back the next day and said, yeah, I love this job. I have a lot of unfinished business. We had a lot of big cases that hadn't yet resolved. And I said, I'll stay. Then it was communicated back to me that, that the president-elect wanted to meet with me. And so after Thanksgiving in 2017, I made the trek to Trump Tower. Um, I talk about all this in the first episode of the podcast from three years ago. And I met with, I met with President-elect Trump, who basically beseeched me to stay. So that's very unusual. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, you know, Rod Rosenstein stayed in multiple administrations, Pat Fitzgerald, but it's, it's an exceedingly rare thing. I was flattered by it. I made sure that I made clear to him that I presume the reason you're asking me to stay on is because of our track record of success and our track record of independence. I, I made sure I made that little speech. And then he, the only peculiar thing that happened in that discussion was he asked me for my, my contact information, or my, you know, my phone numbers. And I, so I wrote, I wrote my, my phone number information down on Post-it note I'm thinking, why, why does the president-elect you know, president of the United States want my digits? And then as the backstory of this, and I'll speed it up, he started calling me. He called me during the transition twice in December, and then two days, be two days before he gets inaugurated, he calls me. He doesn't say anything untoward. We had a discussion internally, ethically. Uh, by the way, not looping in the attorney general, not looping in anyone else, not telling what the subject matter is going to be, which to me is a violation of the separation of politics and justice, and I don't have any relationship with, with Donald Trump, didn't know him, never met him before. Um, and so why is he trying to fraternize with me? Why is he trying to develop a relationship? You know, I didn't like it, especially because I had, uh, you know, jurisdiction over his foundation, over his businesses, over his um, properties, et cetera. It, it, it looked like he was trying to create a relationship, like on the side. I, and I, by the way, I, review, I you know I disclosed all this to the head of, to his head of transition to the head of transition at the Depart Department of Justice, and I figured once he becomes the president, he will not have time to engage in these inappropriate phone calls. And you know, so long as he's not the president and he doesn't say anything inappropriate, I return the call. He then calls me on March 9th. He's now the sitting commander in chief, president of the United States. There have there's already been filed an emoluments clause suit in the Southern District of New York, and there are other calls for investigating the president or his allies or his business associates that are swirling around in the ether. And I get a message that the president of the United States has called and would like you to call back. So it's against that backdrop that I chose not to call him back because I kept thinking, it's not appropriate. What if he says something inappropriate? Am I gonna then reveal that to, to folks? And it was protection, not just for me, but for him. Jeff Sessions wasn't aware that the president of the United States is going around him 
and calling the United States attorney in his jurisdiction, who, by the way, asked me to stay on. So I had a really bad feeling about it. I called the, the secretary back at the White House and said, you know, no offense to the president of the United States, but unless I know what it's about and unless it goes through the attorney general, I don't think it's wise for me to speak. And by the way, I said the chief of staff to the attorney general um, agrees with me because I called him. 20 hours later, I was asked for my letter of resignation. So in that context, I'm like, you know, I'm not going to resign because I uniquely was asked to stay by the president himself. He looked me in the eye, shook my hand, asked me to stay. And to my knowledge, nothing has changed other than he tried to call me yesterday. And so for the, you know, I've been around a long time and maybe it was all, you know, <clears throat> just part of a plan to get rid of all the Obama holdovers, which they ended up doing that day also. But if, if, if the president asked me to stay, then the president has to ask me to go. I'm not going to go because an acting deputy attorney general, Dana Bente, um, some fact, you know, factotum is asking me to go. And I'll happily pack up my bags and go if, if it is, it is co uh, conveyed to me that Donald Trump, who asked me to stay, is now asking me to go. And it took him 24 hours to do that. And when that was conveyed to me on Saturday, two days later, after I refused to return the phone call, I packed up and left. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is really interesting. And as you know, you aren't the only uh, U.S. attorney to get fired. Um, Jeffrey Berman this summer also got fired um, by President Trump, and he refused to submit his resignation, which led to the firing. So um, uh, before we get to the last question, I just want to get a little bit from you about Hunter Biden. Um, as you know, there are investigations now that sounds, at least on its face, uh, credible in Delaware, the Southern District of New York, which uh, was your old office, um, Washington, D.C., and Pittsburgh, as well as the Maine Justice Tax Division. And it may not, or I guess um, likely won't end um, before the inauguration of his father, Joe Biden, as president. So um, you know, do you have any knowledge about what those cases are? And as you mentioned, um, that Barr might be appointing, or actually not Barr, Rosen might be appointing a special prosecutor for those uh, for the case. Um, what do you think, Like, is that the right decision um, for Rosen to do? Yeah, I mean, as I said before, first of all, it may not be Rosen because Barr isn't gone yet. Yeah. It could be his parting act before he leaves on December 23rd. I don't know what date yeah. this podcast is going to air. Um, I don't know a lot about the investigation. And as, as I said, there's some indicia of regularity. Um, there's, there's a lot of reasons to question it because of the track record of the president and what he has said and his you know, continuing sort of uh, intent to persecute the Biden family for political reasons. And you want to do that again if he, <clears throat> if he intends to be a candidate for president in 2024. So I think it's it's right and appropriate to second guess what's going on. And on the other hand, you know, if if they wanted to use this investigation as a political cudgel against the um, the Biden family and Hunter Biden, then you would think they would have publicized it or leaked it in some way. I mean, remember, in the Ukraine affair, one of the most compelling facts that I thought in that whole impeachment proceeding was the idea that Donald Trump didn't really care if there was an investigation or a conclusion to an investigation of Hunter Biden. He wanted the announcement of an investigation, right? Because it was the announcement of an investigation that was gonna dirty up Hunter Biden and his father, presumably, and that would help Trump politically. And here, this is why Trump is so angry, right? Here, he sees a missed opportunity for there to have been an announcement of an investigation because there actually was one. Like, so, you know, it's the inverse of what happened in Ukraine, right here. There was an investigation. I don't know if he could you know, give a damn about the fact of an investigation. It's useless to him. It's like a tree falling in the wood. If there's no one there, does it make a sound? 
if an investigation is not leaked, does it make a sound for, for the purposes of Donald Trump's political fortunes? So there's stuff to indicate that it's real. There's stuff to indicate that you have to question whether or not it's real. Um, I don't know how extensive it is. Some of the reporting indicates from uh, Evan Perez at CNN that it relates to dealings with China. There's some question about his taxes. It, you know, it may, may very well be that laws were broken. It may very well be that they'll do an investigation, like lots of investigations that I oversaw in my office that don't lead to charges. That happens all the time, often with prominent people as well. It doesn't mean there's anything untoward there. Um, I do think that, that Biden, if there's no special prosecutor, <clears throat> no special counsel appointed, you know, it's a little bit delicate for, for Joe Biden and his attorney general. What do they do? What do they do with that U.S. attorney? You know, typically we say that U.S. attorneys turn over. Does it become a little bit more difficult politically? Um, you know, Biden has, has an important job to restore faith and confidence and credibility in the Justice Department. And right off the bat, he's going to have this, you know, sort of difficult thing to deal with. Uh, and, and will he behave differently from Trump? I think he will. It's his son. It's kind of a difficult thing, you know. It, it's I, probably, I, I, yeah. I was just going to say, I thank you for that very nuanced and thoughtful answer. But I just want to point out that the investigation is of Hunter Biden. There are no allegations. Yes, Th Joe. that's clear from the reporting as well. Um, that that the, the, this does not implicate Joe Biden at all. Um, you know, but there are people who, for political purposes, right. don't care about such distinctions like that. And, and want to you know, dirty up an entire family based on the potential misdoings of one person. Yeah. Um, one last, yeah, one last question to end the podcast. Um, so I read your book, Doing Justice. Um, it's such a phenomenal and timely book, even Thank if you, you aren't a lawyer, of course. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was so wonderful, I guess, reading about the importance of pursuing facts and justice, asking every question to get uh, to the truth, um, the challenges and ethical dilemmas for players inside the legal system. Um, so to end the podcast, for many in my generation who may want to become prosecutors or lawyers, um, what advice would you give us on the importance of fact-finding, uh, pursuing justice, and the role that we have um, as rising lawyers or prosecutors in reforming the challenges within the legal system? Yeah, so focus on truth, right? Um, in all your studies, even before you get to law school, um, you know, make sure you have the right compass. Uh, work on your critical thinking skills. And by the way, th the fact that you go to law school and get a degree from a from a university where you know they confer JDs doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be wedded to the facts. I mean, look look at some of these lawyers on behalf of the president, including the erstwhile U.S. attorney in the Southern District, um, uh, Rudy Giuliani. Right? They they are misrepresenting things in court. They're misrepresenting things on television, more on television than in court because they understand the consequences of what happens in court. So you know, the mere idea that someone has a law degree doesn't mean that they're going to be loyal to the truth and loyal to the facts. Um, I think another thing I would say that's very important um, is one of the problems, I made this point in the book, one of the problems we have in the country is that we, we sit in our own silos and we're very isolated from other points of view, right? We watch you know, our channel, we, we, we read our blogs, we listen to our podcasts, we socialize with people who already love Joe Biden uh, or Elizabeth Warren or whatever, or Donald Trump on the other side. And, and we don't engage in debate with, with people, right? And the second thing is when we do engage with other people, it's often with a lot of acrimony and anger and yelling and shouting and name calling. And the president, <clears throat> I think is very much to blame 
we're a worsening and a coarsening of that, right? You know, he calls people, you know, he says dirty Mexicans, he calls people names, um, you know, lying Ted, you know, whatever the case may be, he belittles them, he doesn't engage in the argument. And we should do more of that. And there's a model for that. Uh, and, and it's a courtroom, you know, and, and the more the more people, whether you go to law school or not, who understand that the two things are important, both engaging with, with folks who have a different point of view, and then engaging with them with courtesy and respect and dignity, that makes all the difference. And I, I give the example and, and like this, imagine, the, imagine in the courtroom, you're the defense lawyer uh, or the prosecutor, and one side is up making the arguments to the jury. And during their arguments, you decide to stick your fingers in your ear and you go, nah, 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 nah. And you don't <laughs> listen because you don't want to listen. Like, I don't, I don't want to hear this nonsense, this crap. No, you'd be disbarred. You'd be fired, then you'd be disbarred. Your job, you have no choice. Your job is to listen to the other side so you can make the, the best argument you can for your side. Common sense. We do it in the courtroom, much as lawyers are maligned. I think they should be, um, you know, I think greatly respected uh, for this, right? And the law should be respected for this. And then the second thing is, so presuming, presumably you've heard the other side, you get up and you argue the jury, you can't say your opponent is a liar or, or, or a piece of junk um, or a jerk or a dirty Mexican. You can't say any of those things because if you do, again, there'll be a mistrial, there'll be an objection, sanctions, and potentially disbarment. So these rules of engagement, and by the way, what is the whole purpose of having these rules of engagement in a courtroom? Truth and accountability, right? And I think in society, what we want is what? We want truth and we want accountability. And yet we go about it in this perverse, demented, crazy, angry, divisive way, every day, all the time. And it's fed by the networks and it's fed by blogs and it's fed by politicians. It's fed by people who get elected and take an oath of office. And I think it's hurting the country. And so I am very hopeful that the young people of your generation don't make the same mistakes that like we old guys made uh, in bringing the country to this point. And, and I do have some worries about you know young people also who will fall into the same habit of only listening on campus to people who agree with you. <clears throat> you wanna listen to the people who make you angry and who disagree with you. So you can fight them appropriately, right? With rhetoric and with argument and with legal cases and by getting elected to office. I mean, that's the only way for advancement, right? So when you think about what's important, um, think about how we go about arguing things uh, critically with attention to facts and detail, but also storytelling because stories are important too. For sure. Um, well, we really appreciate my TED talk. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on this podcast. Absolutely. Thanks, Great. folks. Great so being much. with you. Thank Take you. Care. Okay, bye bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.